run at it shouting. Dooski says, run at it shouting. This is the 29th uh, episode of Working with Pinter. We started in, in lockdown in the spring and um, this lovely community meets most Fridays uh, to talk about the work of Harold Pinter and to read and um, celebrate him and uh, where some of us are actors, some of us are writers, some of us are directors, some of us are passionate about literature and theatre and film. It doesn't matter. We, we have no hierarchy. This is not a class. Uh, I'm not a lecturer. And um, uh, we, it's a, dem a democracy. Um, a couple more things to say. Uh, firstly, um, we are incredibly uh, uh, joyful to begin 20... 21 with Henry Wolf joining us. Henry's in Saskatoon, uh, Canada. Uh, and we thank Ava, who is his neighbor, for as usual helping him get on the on the Zoom. Henry, uh, how are you? Uh, welcome. Good to see you again. Good to see you all. Talent is worldwide, I see. <laughs> I'm no longer needed in this world. Oh. I'm just living fossil. <laughs> On the contrary, we need you more than ever because um, you, you were Harold's oldest friend and you, you met, you met uh, at Hackney Downs Grammar School um, in what, 1947? Uh, yes, that's right. That's right. He, Harold handed me a copy of Black Spring by Henry Miller, which wasn't recommended for teenage girls. But <laughs> uh, the next day he said to me, so what do you think? So I realised I was up against a major force and I'd better reply positively or negatively, but forcefully. So I imitated someone speaking forcefully, which was quite an effort. But we remained friends for six years and I eventually gave him back Black Spring. Um, and uh, one of the things that Henry and I have done together in the past was we, we we made a film about Harold for Channel 4 called Working with Pinter, which is now available to all of you since you have um, donated to be part of this evening. So if you want to listen to more of Henry uh, talking to Harold and about Harold, um, please do watch the documentary. Actually, I thought I might play a very short clip um, anyway tonight just to hear Harold saying something about the homecoming and when the homecoming opened in New York because we uh, last week we read The Homecoming. Now uh, there are plenty of new faces on here tonight but we're not going to read the play again because that would take up um, another entire session. Um, so what we're going to do tonight really is just riff on The Homecoming, talk about The Homecoming, reflect on The Homecoming and hear from uh, lots of people will have something to say about The Homecoming um, and even some of you will never have read the play or or heard the play aloud until last week. And I think I especially want to hear uh, people's reactions who are less familiar. There's a, there are a couple of people I must shout out to because uh, I'm so fond of them. Frank Corrado is, uh, is with us for the first time. Frank, it's fantastic to see you. Um, Frank is a great Pintarian. And when he lived in Seattle, he put on his own version of, of working with Pinter. Frank, you'll have to unmute and tell us how many, how many weekends did you do... Um, did you do your uh, sessions at ACT in Seattle? You'll have to... Un oh, there you go. How's, the, how's that? It's fantastic. Okay. <laughs> um, Where are well, you? 
over a, pardon me? Where are you now, in uh, New England? New, New Hampshire, yeah. Uh, the Wilds. Um, yeah, it was uh, shortly after Harold died. Um, I was in a production of You Can't Take It With You at the Seattle Rep, huge cast, very, very fine actors. And I went around and asked my colleagues uh, if they'd ever been in a Pinter play. And it turned out that maybe one or two had been. And Pinter's had always been a great love of mine um, from high school uh, and uh, color me strange. But um, <clears throat> so I, I got into my head the notion that we should do something about this uh, lack of experience with Pinter. And I approached people at uh, ACT, a contemporary theater in Seattle who uh, I think had the most enlightened uh, team of artistic director, producer, et cetera. And, uh, and I was given the, the green light to stage a reading of anything of my choice, which turned out to be no man's land. Why not start with the thorniest and most difficult of them all? <laughs> and uh, about 40 people actually showed up. And um, what was extraordinary was I mean, the reading was the reading, but the discussion that ensued was remarkable. It, 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 uh, it went on for, I think, close to two hours. And suddenly uh, I suspected that there was an appetite for this kind of material. And uh, it turned out that the series, which was called Pinter Fortnightly, uh, took place over a period of three years uh, and 25 evenings and uh, um, and covered pretty much the entire oeuvre, uh, in, including some stuff that wasn't purely theatrical. Um, and eventually it led to a Pinter Festival of, of full productions of uh, um, celebration coupled with the dumbwaiter and old times and no man's land. Plus, you and Henry participated um, in uh, a couple of wonderful public discussions that drew a tremendous response and uh, showed your film. We had a sort of ancillary Pinter uh, film festival, you know, featuring a number of his uh, his film scripts, and uh, we were able to to get lay our hands on the production, for instance, of the birthday party that featured him as Goldberg, which was marvelous. Anyway, so that's the story of my Pinter adventures and exertion. Well, it's a great story and it's great to hear it again. And me and Henry were, were um, you know, thrilled to, to be part of it uh, in, in our own way. And, and Henry, of course, gave an incredible performance of monologue. Yes. Um, and during that festival. And I have to tell you, he gave another amazing performance of it here about two months ago, um, right here on the Zoom. He just went, he just tore it up. It was uh, incredible. And then he hadn't, he hadn't done it since the, that night at, uh, at Seattle. So it was... He is noted for his amazing performances. Well, he is, he is. I'm really touched to hear you say that, guys. <laughs> Would you mind recording that? We are That's recording it. Has been. 
Uh, well, Frank, it's wonderful to see you. I just want to also shout out to Richard Baird, who's, uh, who I think is tuning in from San Diego, where he has single-handedly put Pinter on the map there. We've also got Susan Hollis Merritt with us, who is the queen of, of uh, Pinter um, criticism and, um, and a celebrated uh, Pinterite in her own right. And, and it's so wonderful to see a lot of new faces as well this evening. So we, we, we read, um, oh, Matt, Matt Williams has got his hand up. Uh, Matt, do you want to speak? Or did you? Did you... Uh, yeah, I'll let you finish first, though. I thought we just have to get ready to ask our question. Like, say some more. <laughs> what, what, what's your question? I'm too eager, man. Oh, I'm going for Henry. Go on then. Yeah. Yeah. Can you hear me? Sure, for sure. Yeah. Uh, well, that was the first time I'd read the play last week, um, and my favourite thing about it was its lack of sentimentality. It was completely unsentimental about those sort of characters. Um. And I think what's interesting is if it was written today, I think it would actually offend a lot of people, which is great. Offend. So what I wanted to <laughs> offend, yeah. So what I wanted to ask Henry was, because of his background and your background, how aware of how aware of that was Harold, of that he wanted it to be completely mm. unsentimental and as honest as possible. Does that well, make sense? I think that was true of all his work. Just taken for yeah. granted that you were getting what you were getting. But um, uh, one aspect of this was that Harold wasn't in control of his characters totally at all. Because um, I remember once, I don't know if this is exactly relevant, but that has never hindered me. It's just that, for example, Wyndham Lenny describes his uh, journey to the Thames and beating up the lady and deciding not to kill her. No, no, no. The director, we were he was making the film in Hackney, said to Harold, how about um, getting outside this cramped room and getting on Lenny's journey to the Thames? And uh, Harold said, we can't do that. And the chap said, why? Why not? He said, because we don't know if Lenny is telling the truth. And that is marginally answers your question that it's impossible to be sentimental, possibly, about other people talking. In Harold's plays, I remember Irving Wardle, who was such a good critic, saying to Harold, Harold, do you envisage the end of the play? He said... It's strange to ask, and of course I do. But I think the reason Harold had to have a corral and an unsentimental corral at the end of his plays, because otherwise I think his characters would run away with the play. He couldn't totally control them. And Ruth, for example, just would take over the play if she was allowed to, and somehow... To answer your question a bit better, when we saw it first at the Aldwych in London, the audience, who you have to understand were royal Shakespeare audiences, they'd endured uh, things like the Marassard sort of thing. But when they heard Max say, I'll chop your spine off, you'll drown in your own blood. 
they were slightly surprised. <laughs> and so going with this kind of uh, verbal approach, sentimentality didn't have a chance. And the audience sat there, and before they knew what had happened, the play had them by the throats. And they were the play's audience and victims, and they'd better enjoy themselves because the doors had been locked. And they, um, they, strangely enough, against their will, I think, found themselves fascinated and enjoying themselves in a way they possibly never had before. Because that kind of play was fresh to the London stage. I don't think that was a very good answer to your question. But no, there it was. You go. It was. Thank you. It was a lovely answer. And I'm going to just roll this clip um, of, because talking about audiences, Harold himself had something to say um, about his relationship to audiences. And I think it's, it's great that we should, um, the fact that we gather like this, it's always wonderful to bring Harold into it a, a little bit and hear his voice as well. So let me just see if I can, as usual, I have to try and master the, the technicalities of sharing my screen, but here we go. Uh, share screen, share sound. And hopefully this will work. Critics. With the exception of the influential Harold Hobson, who wrote in the Sunday Times, Mr. Pinter and the birthday party will be heard of again. Make a note of their names. Within three years, the theatre world had recognised Pinter as the leading voice of a new generation. I always saw acting was a kind of contest with the audience at that time. It was either them or us. <laughs> you know, who was in charge. And to a certain extent, that's remained with me all my professional life in writing plays, that I, I had an idea of what would shut an audience up through being an actor. And um, it hasn't always worked, by the way. You can't regulate an audience. You can't tell an audience what to do. But you've got to keep your end up. By the mid-1960s, The Dumb Waiter, The Caretaker and The Homecoming established Pinter in Britain, America and all over the world as the most exciting and original dramatist since Samuel Beckett. And now perhaps I'll relieve you of your bluffs. I haven't quite finished. You've consumed quite enough, in my opinion. No, I haven't. Quite sufficient, in my own opinion. Not in mine, Leonard. Don't call me that, please. Why not? That's the name my mother gave me. Just give me the glass. No. I'll take it, then. If you take the glass, I'll take you. Funny and disturbing, his characters and situations required audiences to look at life as it really is, strange and often unresolved. One of the greatest moments of my professional life was when The Homecoming was done on Broadway in 1967. And the very first night, the music box theatre the curtain, as they say, went up 
and there were these men and women in their mink coats and suits and ties, and they looked at the set and hated it immediately. And they thought, this is the most appalling evening of our lives. Why are we here? And to my immense delight, the actors came on and said, we feel exactly the same about you. We hate you. So go and stick your, you know. And they did that. And the audience finally surrendered, you know. It was a great, great achievement of actors over audience. And I have never forgotten it. Um, and I still think. I think uh, we'll, we'll cut it there. Um, but it's, it's lovely to, um, to have him. But Henry, do you think Harold is, is being a touch hyperbolic there, where he, where he says that the actors came on and almost sort of um, went into battle with the audience? Is, is, is that just him um, gilding the lily a bit? Or was, was there a, a sort of danger to, to, to the, uh, the proceedings? Well, I think the word you used, hyperbolic, is quite apropos. I think he was well over the top in his antipathy to audiences generally throughout his career. But they owed everything to him and he owed everything to them. Not everything at all. Of course, he would write if he was alone in an attic. But um, he was very sensitive to audience reactions. And I don't think it ever occurred to him that those individuals who came into the theatre in their mink coats with a very highly developed sensitivity to their own sensitivity were in, within 20 minutes of watching The Homecoming or any other printer play. They would lose their individuality and become one organism totally at the mercy of the play. And I don't think he ever signed a peace treaty with the audience, but they had to surrender. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't want to exclude anybody at this point, but I would love to hear from anybody who was with us last week, for whom, like Matthew um, Williams just now, for whom the play was new. Anybody who, who, who doesn't know the play well and has either watched the film this week or, or reflected on our reading. I, I'd love to hear from, from anybody who's, um, uh, you don't have to have a question, but just whether, whether anything has stayed with you, um, particularly from, from last week. Yeah, the first time I read it, I read it once before we did the session and was like, I don't like this at all. No. <laughs> I was like, I'm horrified. What, they're putting him on the game. But then the second time um, I was like, I don't know. I've been swaying all week. It's kept popping into my head. I'm like, and I think I even messaged you, um, Harry. I was like, well, is he, is, is she like, actually, rather than being like a wife and having these kids and, you know, she's completely independent. She's got a flat in Soho um, and actually kind of has financial freedom. Um, and when I was in Amsterdam years ago, I had a really interesting chat with um, a sex worker who was completely in control, um, rents her space um and gets to say no to men she doesn't want to sleep with um I don't know so I just yeah all week I've kind of been wondering like and, you know it's written by a man so you're like mm, that makes you think about it but yeah I can't decide I still can't decide on on if I I'm like oh she 
like from a female actor point of view like if she is freed or if she's shackled and I kind of like pops into my mind that I'm doing something I'm like oh she's actually financially free and then she's and I'm like oh so I'm on the fence with it I don't know I'm interested to hear what people think and obviously you're viewing it through the modern context of like I mean Jesus to put this on now after like hashtag me too you'd need a thick skin as a director or a company right to justify it unless you completely do flip it and I'm like if I had to marry a guy that I don't want to is that any worse than prostitution I don't think it is so yeah I don't they were my thoughts on it I'm kind of on the fence I don't know if any other women feel the same um great thank you lovely that's that's wonderful I mean I just that's a great great response push bam so um, yeah, um, I um, heard the play for the first time um, last week as well, and there were two things. One was the comment that I make on um, Tarantino always ripping Pinter off, <laughs> and he's doing it again. Um, and this comment about the the for Ruth. I mean, you showed that clip, and that's the clip that's haunted me the most. Where she's talking about the water, the glass of water and how powerful she is. Um, and I think in this, I'm going to say something that might be really controversial. Everybody can stone me to death for this, but um, I don't necessarily believe in the, this whole feminist movement. I believe that there are differences between men and women that should be celebrated. Um, everybody should be respectful of each other um and uh, and actually celebrate those differences i don't think men are more powerful than women i don't think women are more powerful we're just different creatures we're all human beings and we have some traits but those are my personal beliefs and i think why i've really enjoyed pinter and the women that he's portrayed is because they are very powerful and they are very feminine and they're very strong even in the most adverse circumstances um, and the the fact of the prostitution and and you know it is I've worked in a sexual health environment and for some women it it was an eye eye opening experience for me where I saw women actually enjoy their work. I'm getting paid for it. I enjoy having sex. I'm very safe and and I was like okay fine. Um, that that's their choice and they're living their choice. And, and in this, you also see Ruth living her choice as well. Yes, there are vulnerabilities and everybody has weak points and each character has a weak point in their life, which is also celebrated, but that is actually life. Um, and even though the goriness is really quite outlandish at times, particularly for the, for the era that, Pinter was writing it in and it was an you know a changing environment that he was bringing he was bringing chaos and change into 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 theatre with, with the language and the the gore that is also life and it was one of the reasons I like him for being bold for doing it um, but yeah those are my observations but that particular scene I just thought how 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 sexy 
this guy is a complete nasty gangster and yet she's got him so weak at the knees that he's just standing there looking at the glass thinking what shall I do with it and she's like well I'm gonna I'm gonna put I'm gonna own you um so the status I think we may think of the status being a bit warped but I don't think it is in personal interactions great Thank you. Very, very rich. And one of the things that you made me think about was that, <clears throat> you know, because obviously a, a central tenet of any kind of feminism worth the name would be, uh, you know, financial parity, equality uh, of status and so forth. Uh, and and um, Ruth is absolutely sensational at um, playing hardball when it comes mm -hmm. to negotiating with, with the men. She's a, mm -hmm. she, she drives a really tough bargain. And um, you know that's one of the most uh, noticeable things about about her presence as the play goes on is, is yeah. it, um, as as you say you see it first in that scene with Lenny in the the glass but she but she's prepared to to back herself up with with negotiating skills that people would die to have these days yeah and I think if she was given the given any situation she probably would have no calms and sort of smashing the glass and like lunging into him if she needed to you know it's like i'll knife you if i need to if i to get what i want there does, so seem, there does seem to be a moment of recognition of some kind of recognition between her and lenny in that scene um later on obviously they bond over she can't buy the kinds of shoes that she likes in america and he's very sympathetic for that and then he asks her to dance and she is very happy to dance uh but but there's a very quick recognition going on between them from the minute they meet, really. But Harry, don't you think that a Pinter always paints those sort of pictures that the the recognition for for each character actually seeing each other, which actually you know you shouldn't you know typically you might not like these human beings in real life, but you end up really liking these people because they see each other and you you see that in the play, um, and actually the reason they I think Ruth is really powerful is. Um, and is because she gets that recognition and that's why Lenny's prepared to like, oh, wow, you know, that I've got an equal in front of me. Um, anyway, I'll shut up, otherwise I'll go on and on. <laughs> yes, who, who else wants to say something? Arushi. Hi, Arushi. Thank you. Hi, hi, Harry. Thank you. Thanks for doing this. Um, last week was also, it was the first time that I read this play. I just, I knew it was one of his, you know, most famous and most successful ones. Um, and my similar to Kerry, my initial response was very knee-jerk. And I, as soon as the meeting ended, I just sat by myself for a minute going, wait, this is meant to be a masterpiece? <laughs> um, and then I spent time with it and I realized that something that, and this is actually something I wanted to ask Henry as well, is I find a lot of contempt, most contemporary theater really, really disappointing and banal and, <clears throat> I thought the, the great thing about this play and Pinter's work in general is that even though it's, it's you know, it's, they're not Shakespearean um, situations and settings, but the stakes always feel so high. As a, and as an actor, it almost feels like if we were doing stuff like that, that we wouldn't even need to be doing much because it's all there on paper. And the characters are so, I mean, obviously I'm a feminist. I don't know anyone who's not a feminist. I'm only friends with feminists. But the thing about characters I think is you don't have to like them. You don't have to spend time with them. I don't know that I like any single character in the play, but I would love to play most of them as an actor because I think the point of theater is to 
is to make people have a knee-jerk reaction or because the truth isn't pretty and it's not it's not politically correct and it's not clean and tidy it's messy and it's gray and it's it's you know it, it makes you doubt yourself and doubt the world that you live in and I think that play does that so well and the comedy is just ridiculous I don't I reading things and laughing out I mean it's just crazy and I just for Henry I was wondering what you obviously having you know been close to to Pinter and then living through all this this the the, the way that the, the the ways in which theatre has kind of grown or evolved what do you think of of contemporary theatre and do you think because I feel like it's all so mundane now and, and it doesn't make people, it doesn't affect, so much of it doesn't affect people anymore. And I just wonder if, how you felt about it and if you think that it kind of, that theatre is cyclical in the way that it grows and changes and it, you know, it starts somewhere and then it ends up somewhere else a few years later. Well, I think that uh, the world is a duller place without Harold and his plays. And something that interested me very much is about Ruth, that she represents not the modern feminist at all, but someone who uses pretty traditional means to achieve her ends. But if one compares Ruth with the feminine characters of the 20s, just after the First World War, just as the homecoming is not all that long after the Second World War, but the women in the 20s, women like Ruth Etting, who sang those wonderful songs, 10 cents for dance, whatever, whatever, they occupied a receiving place in relation to men, and they could hardly exist without men. They couldn't exist without describing their lives in terms of love, mm -hmm. love with men. But by the time we reach Ruth, the situation has changed and the women don't need that much from men, but they need to use them. And it's wonderful to see the progression into modern feminism. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing for me is that in Harold's plays, because he does something that very few people have done, step in and out of his imaginative world without being frightened of what the results are. When someone asks about his unsentimental, it's because the land he prefers to travel in, the land of the imagination is unsentimental and he copes with it. But what interests me is, the parts of the place like the homecoming that are everlasting, they last, they are typical of the human interactions, yeah. but there are also parts that are deliciously dated in a way. Mm -hmm. It's wonderful to hear people say things that uh, in what is laughingly known as real life, <laughs> they could never get away with. And uh, I love uh, dear old Ruth, but I do think that uh, people might be cross with me for saying this, or they might not, or they might not even listen. It is that um, he isn't afraid of imaginative work, but if you look at Ruth and at Rose in the, his first play, The Room, 
They are, in a sense, idealized women. They're women who are bestriding a world of their own in which there are very useful extras, many of whom happen to be men. But both of them, Rose and Ruth, are idealized in a way that, um, say, Meg in the birthday party isn't. And uh, Kate and Anna, you know, times aren't in the same way, but they are sort of creatures of the imagination. They aren't quite real. They are super real. Why does, in the very first play, why does Riley come and say, Ruth, you're needed? Who and what is Ruth, is Rose, rather, Rose running away from? The answer must be herself. Whereas Ruth is also idealized, I think, but she isn't a running away from anyone, and especially not herself. So I do think, I don't know, I stand here to be contradicted. It's just like marriage in that way, is the fact that feminism has progressed so markedly and so visibly over the centuries, over the years. I don't think that's a very satisfactory answer. No, it is. And I, I agree with, I would say Ruth is an absolute, absolutely a feminist character because she's, choose, she's, she's, I think there is a certain level of autonomy that she has. It's, I think the, lang the men around her don't display very feministic qualities. But again, like I said earlier, men in the real world today don't, you know? And I think censorship of truth can be quite harmful because until you show people what the world is, that you, you can't really change that. And mm. characters aren't meant to be, you know, they're not meant to be perfect. They're not meant to be PC. Uh, don't you think that the men are frightened of Ruth because she is the future and they are the past. Absolutely. And they are losing wicket. And yeah. if you look at television now, the number of nerdy men <laughs> far outnumber the number of strikingly powerful and individual women. And uh, I say three cheers because, you know, powerful and independent women are really much more fun than those who just bring you one cups of tea and with a bit of like a biscuit too. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Thank you. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Henry. Yes. In your passionate enthusiasm, you're getting so close to your camera that we're sort of looking at you as if you were a great blue whale. We can see into your deep into your eye, but we can't see anything else. I have always wanted to be a deep blue whale. Oh, well. Anybody know? <laughs> All right. Well, um, how's this? That is that's that's it's better because we can see all of you. Um, who else wanted to say something? Uh, Miriam. Hi, everyone. Um, so I um, after uh, reading it last week, uh, I went and watched the film and uh, I've read it a few years ago as well. And I hadn't really remembered as much as I thought I had. Um, but I've been thinking about it all week and um, I don't know where this is going, but <laughs> um, thinking about Ruth and and the way she's been treated, I think there's been some really good art, uh, points put across. So I'm not going to really add to that as much. But I was going to say about the men in the piece is um, it. I think it shows that the men need the women more than 
then the women need the men. It's just as, as Henry said, uh, it's as if um, the father, I can't remember his name, is it Max? Max. Feels emasculated by the fact that he has to do the cooking and things like that. And he has to play the role of mother. Um, and uh, yeah, like the women leave them and they're left together and they can't, they need to have the woman, a woman in there to, to make themselves work, I suppose. Um, and the other thing I'd say is that um, I really wanna get in a rehearsal room because I can't unpick the play and I need, I need to sit with actors. I go, right guys, let's, let's do this for like five hours and really pick this part, play apart because, because Ruth could be played in so many different ways that um, I think it'd just be interesting to see all those slight changes, especially in that last half of, of how she reacts to their proposition. That was it. <laughs> Thanks, Miriam. Uh, I couldn't be agree with you more about wanting to be in a rehearsal room working on, on this play, my goodness. Um, it really gets the juices flowing. Who else? Louis. Hello. Uh, yeah, so last week I watched the film um, before we read through the the script. Um, and the, watching the film was the first time I'd actually um, delved into the play. Um, obviously, yeah, it was, it was sort of, obviously I was hit twice by the sort of scathing <laughs> misogyny in the script um, that day. Um, but, but I think I, I sort of like, I looked at it, on face value at first and kind of you know it is shocking a lot of the things that are said but then but then I sort of look, started looking at it in a, in a different way I started watching it I started watching it in a way that reminded me of when I was doing um buffooning at drama school and that the idea of the the buffon is that their their goal is to sort of kill the bastard and like basically just take the piss by being the bastard and like, I was sort of watching as I was watching and and you know playing like some of the characters last week it's sort of I wondered you know Henry or, or, or Harry what your thoughts were on on Harold's um, ability to sort of take the piss out of those kinds of people um, in in his writing because that's how I started to see it at, at one point during the film. I sort of switched and I just I just couldn't help laughing at these guys, um, that there are actual people like this. Um, so I just wonder what your thoughts were. Harry, speak. Well, I've, I've only just gone, today gone back to Michael Billington's um, wonderful chapter on the homecoming in his book about Harold, which I recommend if anybody wants to know more about, uh, about Harold's life. Uh, the, the Michael Billington biography is is a wonderful place to start, but Billington reminds us that in the um, someone just put in the chat, what did we find out what Lenny's job is? Um, I, it's very hard to escape the conclusion that he's some sort of pimp, um, and that he may well have a a, a, um, a, a stable of of call girls. A, a stable doesn't sound right because that's to do with horses, but. Um, but I've just realised from reading Billington again that in an earlier draft, Lenny was a milkman. <laughs> so, um, 
the journey of these characters and how they evolved and ended up being the ones that we see in the film and on the page is an extraordinary journey. And um, I can I can read a, f- a couple of bits uh, that illustrate that um, if anybody wants to hear a bit more about that, because it, it really is fascinating. But but H- Henry, um, you, you must feel, as I do, that Harold was extraordinarily a, a brilliant listener and he seemed to attract in life some very vivid people. They, people came, seemed to come into his life uh, and, and feel a, a need to tell him stories. And he was always very interested in p- people's stories. As long as he didn't feel they were, um, you know, taking the piss out of him, he was a very good listener. So I assume that a lot of the things that we see in this play are probably rooted in something close to real life in, in terms of experience. Uh, would you go along with that? Oh, yes, I would. And the thing is that Harold didn't conceal his thoughts, emotions, ideas, far from it. Whereas most of us spend most of our social life concealing our inner and real thoughts. Or maybe I'm only talking about myself. But um, what I like about these gang of rats or wolves that constitute then his family and the man who's betrayed them, Teddy, by leaving and being kind of respectable, they are totally and wonderfully upstaged by Ruth because they're male weapons of incipient violence mean nothing to her because she never offers it. She is queen of a different kind of sexual attraction and aggression too and I love it when Pinter is funny as he is all the time really even with wolves and rats it's marvellous when uh, when Sam at the end of the play has revealed something terrible that happened in the back of his taxi and then collapses apparently with a fatal heart, heart attack I love it when Teddy says, what? I was hoping he'd drive me to London Airport. I think that's a wonderful Pinter attitude and response. It is non, as the the clever man who said, was he sentimental? No, he wasn't sentimental. But as you said, Harry, he was a great listener. And our chat, as we wandered around Hackney, was full of reported stories, not just ordinary young men talking about themselves, although there's a heck of a lot of that. No, we listen to each other because if we didn't listen, nobody would listen to us. As simple as that. (laughs) That's great. Um, I always remember the story that, uh, I think I told it once here, but uh, the story that Alan Aikbourne told about being in Scarborough in 1958 (laughs) when Harold was directing the second production of The Birthday Party and Alan Aikborn was playing Stanley and the whole cast was so baffled by the play that they took Harold to a pub for lunch on the first day of rehearsal in order to pump him for, for answers about what the hell was going on in the play but before they could start a man ran into the pub and sat down with with the cast and said, I've got to talk to someone because of what, what's just happened. And Harold said, well, tell us. And the man had stuffed his mother-in-law up the chimney because she every, every week 
every week she took his pay packet and he felt emasculated by his mother-in-law. So he'd finally snapped and had shoved her in anger up the chimney. Um, and the man, the man said, to her, I don't know what to do. And, and Harold said, well, you don't want to swing for her. You'd better go and get her out. And um, the man said, God, you're right. Thank you so much. And he ran away. Um, and then there was a long pause and someone said, uh, what an extraordinary chap. And Harold said, was he? <laughs> That's very funny. Very it's, good. Because there's a lot of evidence that that uh, Harold attracted um, extraordinary people, and uh, who felt compelled to, to tell him their to tell him their stories. Anyway, hi Harry. Evening. Hi there. Hi everyone. I am going to be really boring and ask a text question. Um, <laughs> I feel like the only person that, that isn't talking about feminism and stuff tonight. Um, considering the time it was written, um, it reminds me very much of the caretaker in terms of language. And I want my question is: Is there a relation between the two plays? Because with this, Max seems to get a lot of waffle in the play, and a lot of ranting and venting and going off on one. Um, and you get characters like Sam and Lenny who are very uh, minuscule in their sentences and it reminds me of the caretaker where davis is a waffler and a rambler and a venter and you've got aston who's very minuscule do you think there's a, a connection there or a link in any way or do you think that's just coincidence i think it's i, I certainly think it's them thematic in in a in a, a broad sense that there are certain dynamics that are that recur um the older man the two uh, the, the two brothers who are dealing with him, um, mm. the 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 loss of power of the older man, the the, the raging against the dying of the light, if you like. Uh, that's my first reaction. What about you, Henry? Well, you know, one of the interesting things for me is no one, although they might have been slightly shocked at the language of the men. Nevertheless, no one insisted that the Lord Chamberlain should step in and close the production. They realised, I think, that the themes, as he put it, were socially true and couldn't be objected to on polite grounds. And uh, Harold was quite open and enthusiastic about the poetry of working class men in the army and so forth. There weren't enough working class women who wrote poetry that was published. But even in the unpublished poetry of these men, there's a wonderful uh, frankness and rudeness, if you like, about the way they spoke. And I remember being with Harold and Vivian when up the stairs came three people, two brothers and a vagrant and they became the archetypes for the uh, caretaker. And the Davis character, as he became, was talking at the top of his voice, but also using the same frank, ugly, and poetic, really, language of Max. And occasionally Lenny, you know, and more than occasionally. And I... Uh, I just think that uh, the honesty of the play overcame people's prejudices about 
polite or impolite language. And I think they would be the last to admit it, but a lot of that comfortable middle class uh, audience of the Royal Shakespeare and later in New York, in their mink coats and whatever, were secretly relieved that a prejudice, a barrier against extremely frank and frequently ugly language had been broken through. And their own lives, their own imaginations were allowed to flourish, just like when Joey comes down from having a strange session with Ruth. People, I think, welcome Pinter, even the same people who would say, really, I don't expect to hear language like that in the theater. I suspect that inwardly they rejoiced. There's a, there's a tiny thing here about the, Henry mentioned the Lord Chamberlain. Not everybody, most of you will know, but not everyone will know that the Lord Chamberlain was the official theater censor in the UK um, right up until the end of the 60s, I, I guess. Um, is, is that accurate? Um, I think but, so. Um, Harold's friend uh, Guy Veeson um, wrote to Harold after he'd read The Homecoming and, and, and asked him if he'd been reading Eugene O'Neill recently, which Harold didn't, he didn't think much of that. He said, um, uh, this is Harold replying, you say, have you been reading O'Neill lately? I haven't, but surely you wouldn't suggest I have to read other playwrights before writing my own work. There might indeed be an O'Neillish bell rung since I deal with a family in the play, but I didn't have to do any homework on any of his work first. In fact, I haven't thought about him for years, which seems quite reactive, isn't it? Anyway, he then goes on, he then goes on to say, uh, Pinter chattily points out in the letter that Paul Rogers is due to play Max and that the Lord Chamberlain, the official theatrical censor, has hung on to the manuscript three times longer than usual. He then adds as a PS, by the way, afterthought, I don't feel myself more critical of any one character in this play than another. I love and detest the lot of them, which I think is really, really good. Michael. Well, uh, it's very timely, Harry, because that was exactly the, the quotation I was trying to remember. Because uh, when Tara was talking earlier about, you know, where does one's sympathies lie? You know, which do you like and which, uh, uh, which way are you pointed in terms of any sort of moral judgment within within the piece you know that's very clear that uh, the, the, the the full human beings all of them they've all got their their good points and their bad points but one of the things that was and so many interesting points that one would love to be able to pick up on as we've been we've been talking so excuse me if a, a couple of these things i want to talk about just uh, backtrack a little bit um one was the really the question of the of ruth's power where does that come from? And for somebody who's such a good manipulator, as we see her in the play, so in control and cool of the situation, how does that relate to the relationship she had with, with Ted? Why did she go with Ted in the first place? How has she not manipulated him um, in the same way she sees him manipulating the other? Or maybe she has. We don't know that much about their back life, other than their, their different opinion upon life in America. You know, for, for Teddy, it's the pool and the sand and, the, you know, blah, 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 all the sparkly lights. And for, for Ruth, it's, it's rocks and stones and, you know, it's, it's sterile uh, is the word that comes to mind for her. So 
there's a still a, a real difficulty for me to to understand the point in the play in which she makes the choice to take control of this family. She yeah. hasn't been in the family before. She's heard a little bit of the background. Obviously, Teddy's talked about it, but it's not as though they've been in touch. But at some point, is it on the walk? Is it on, you know, is she, well, what point does she plan her future as being mm. better within this world here in Hackney in London than back in the States with the, with the salary and the prestige of being the doctor of philosophy's wife and the campus life and all that. So that's one area of interest. Also, that question, and, and it goes back to what Henry was saying about that, um, uh, the, the, the complicated view of uh, women being both whores and, and goddesses. You know, and, and Max talks about, uh, about Ruth in the same sort of way. He calls her a, uh, you know, a whore and a slop bucket and all that and stuff. And then, oh, she's a woman of quality, he says, you know, and the, the complication. That's such an, an old-fashioned sort of chauvinistic point of view, isn't it? It's the, a very particularly male point of view of, um, uh, you, you know, the, the, uh, the virtuous woman and mother in the home and the whore in the bedroom. Um, and uh, Ruth seems to embody a, a, that element comes into what we understand about Ruth quite a lot. But we also get a bit about her background, don't we? We get a bit about her background of being taken out to country houses and, and changing in the house and then going down to model. And she's not a hat model. You know, this is, this is Lenny's ironic, isn't it? She's a body model. So what was she doing? What sort of model was she? It, it puts into mind the sort of Christine Keeler world and this, this house being like Cliveden and the pool and all that which was going on uh, around this time or coming to, coming to light. Uh, I imagined her as maybe being the, the sort of uh, the, the front model on, you know, those naturist magazines. They've got, <laughs> doing, they've got away doing nudes or, or working in Titbits. Henry, you remember Titbits magazine? I had it under my pillow every night. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, so, you know, there's all sorts of... So, you know, Ruth's experience of manipulating men, you know, probably goes back to those sort of experiences and potentially sexually charged experiences when she was doing that, that sort of modelling. And so maybe at some point along the way, Teddy presented a way out of, of that world and she could manipulate Ted in the same way as she manipulates the rest of the family which maybe gives her a clue about how to do that um, but you know it's, it's such a fascinating piece to untease these these elements and particularly the relationship between Lenny and and Max um, uh, you know and the assistance of, about Max or oh, he, he, he loves his father uh, you know, the end of Act One. And um, and yet the potential sowed there that uh, that Len is the result of the backseat meet backseat sex between between Jesse and McGregor. Um, you know, so much fascinating stuff is is there for exp exploration, just the sort of stuff one would go into in rehearsal. But just a, a, another a question to uh, a new sort of question really uh but again back to sort of henry is that you know there's a lot of the analysis of the piece that talks about how jewish 
is this family background? How Jewish is this is this family? We have the the hint from the the Michael Billington and Peter Hall quotes about um, you know Max being based on uh, on Moshe Vernick's uh, father and even appearing in a flat cap at the door. And even though there's some dispute about whether he ever or not wrote, wrote war plimsolls, um, you know, but, uh, <laughs> was that was that a basis of it? But that was a big house like this, and and Moshe's brother had uh, apparently uh, been some sort of academic uh, doctrine and moved away from the family like that. So again, the, the, the life parallels that Pinter brings into the, the piece are extraordinary. Going through it with that in mind, I could only find a couple of, a couple of moments where there are, if you like, uh, Jewishisms <laughs> uh, in the, in the, in the in the rhythms of things and the, the one that particularly stuck out to me was was um uh was max looking at lenny and there he is you know dancing with his sister-in-law like a sort of proud jewish mother <laughs> overviewing her son's her son's uh refinement and sophistication but um i'd be interesting uh henry in in how you feel that that connects with with Pinter's Jewish background and Jewish experience? Well, I think they are Jews who have escaped from being traditional Jews and without even knowing it, want to have succeeded in assimilating into the East London world. The world they inhabit with ease and a world which unusually they're accepted really and they'd better be accepted because they have a potential for violence. But I often thought about what brings Ruth and Teddy to that house. And it seems to me they're both refugees from their backgrounds to begin with. Teddy broke away from the wolf pack of rats and wolves he lived in and brought up in, brought up with. And Ruth, Ruth's account of her own life and modeling for the body never rings true to me. I think all of it is invented. I think a big mistake sometimes one makes with Pinter is believing what people say about themselves. We very, very often, some would say most often, don't tell the truth. And uh, Ruth's modeling for the body. One of the few descriptions of the outdoors is Ruth's speech, and it never rings absolutely true. I think it's a prepared speech. Ruth, I think, came from the same background as Teddy, and she wanted to metamorphosize into someone accepted in a different world, but somehow found either her vocabulary or her behavior inappropriate at a university and Teddy one feels is a get on boy and he's finding her inappropriate and he brings her back to a world she's going to be at home in because he's had time to realize just how formidable she is and uh, I don't know if that even begins to answer your question. Um, I'd like to chuck in just at this point because I've been reading this chapter about uh, the, the drafting process of the homecoming. Um, Billington uh, 
quotes from the first draft of the homecoming and the most significant aspect of this version is that Pinter locates the action in the East End and that uh, Max, who at this point is called Wally, uh, Max, judging by his opening speech, seems to be Jewish. Quote, I used to knock about with a man called Berkowitz. I called him Berkey. <laughs> Come on, Berkey, where are you going tonight? Coming up west tonight? We'd go round the back doubles, turn over a couple of tarts. I've still got the scars. We used to walk back to back, Berkey and me. The terrible twins, they used to call us. He was six foot tall, but even his family called him Berkey. Of course, the old man was a Berkowitz too. They were all Berkowitzes, but he was the only one they called Berkey. George. <laughs> so this, this play has gone through an extraordinary process of yes. gestation. Yes. And um, it really is remarkable yes. to, to consider it that way because, you know, some of the other plays we know uh, came almost fully formed out of Harold and they just arrive on the page and that's that. But this is one of those plays that, that came out of him out of all kinds of different directions initially and that he shaped and honed and worked on like a great poet um, so that in the end, you know, uh, even the pauses and silences are, um, are very, very precise and very located, very local. Um, when I made my film about Harold, he only watched it once because he didn't particularly enjoy um, films about himself but he he gave me one note and only one note about the commentary and the commentary he um, wanted me to correct was the only time where I referred uh, uh, well I, I said something about his political conscience being inextricably connected to his Jewishness and he said I don't want you to say that um, I don't I don't see that that's true um, my, I don't think my Jewishness is the, the, the point of my being a, a passionate political person at all. Um, I just want you to leave that out. And of course I did. Um, I just think, I, I don't think I've ever shared that. So I thought I'd just chuck that in. Yeah, very good. Um, we, we've had some fantastic questions. I know there are still some hands up and we, we will get to you, but I've had some, we've had some great questions I don't want to forget some of Mike's points as well we, we will come on to the question of the deep origins of the homecoming uh Moishe, the role of Moisha Wernick and his dad um and Moisha himself wrote a fabulous piece for the Pinter Review where he made extremely explicit his his own part in the origins of the homecoming so we will come on to that there have also been some fabulous uh references to moments in the play for example, sex on the back seats of taxis. Um, I don't think that's as irrelevant as it sounds. Um, something else that Moisha reveals in, in uh, one of his letters is, is that his uncle was a cabbie. And during the war, a certain number of London cabbies were prepared to risk their licenses by using their taxis as mobile bordellos. And which I think is, is profoundly interesting since we know that Harold was listening to the conversation where that came out between Moisha's dad and Moisha's uncle. Um, and the whole question of Sam the driver driving Jesse around the West End, driving, potentially driving other people who, um, it, it raises a whole, a whole hinterland of what the hell McGregor and Max were up to and there are clues. Now, what Mike was doing so eloquently 
was exactly the process that, that we would do in the rehearsal room with Pinto. When you look at these plays on the page, it is tempting sometimes to think this, this is the work of a writer who is deliberately baffling us. He doesn't really want us to know what actually happened. Um, and, and he's taking pleasure in retaining information and withholding. I think anyone on this grid who's done a Pinto play knows that that isn't the case. I don't believe Harold ever wants to fuck with the actors or the audience for the sake of, of, of the power of that. What he does is he leaves things out, but, but, but offers bread, a, a trail of breadcrumbs in the form of clues that are embedded in the text. Um, and so as Mike and um, others have suggested, the, 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 the highest possible fun is, and Frank knows this and Richard Baird knows this and Henry knows this, the, the highest possible fun is to be in a rehearsal room looking for those clues and trying to figure out what exactly might be going on here. And then you, you road test possible solutions. You eliminate, you eliminate things that um, go against what's on the page. You, you don't, using um, David Mamet's uh, very good phrase, you know, invent nothing, deny nothing. You don't um, come up with crazy backstories that can't possibly be supported by what people say. You try and work with, what's, with what you're given. And it's the most rewarding process I've ever, ever participated in because so few writers trust actors as deeply as Harold did to find those clues and then um, flesh them out and give them and give them, uh, you know, fully rounded life. The life of Harold's characters is so in the present moment. That's what's ultimately so thrilling about them. Uh, next is Tara. Yeah, hi. Um, it's interesting, uh, Harry, what you said there um, about, you know, Harold Pinter being reactive. And it's funny, my, you know, when I was listening to the play last week, I kind of felt quite reactive to it. Um, and then even in this conversation, I find myself feeling quite reactive and it's just kind of trying to then transform it to, to respond to it. And that's what I find so interesting about this as well. It was conversation about, um, you know, like what, what feminism is, um, for example. And it's so interesting that, that the idea that has taken off of feminism being about women overpowering men or becoming better than men is that to me that's not what it is at all it's about equality um that's it it's about making women and men have equal choice um as opposed to only men being able to have those choices um whatever women want to do if you want to wear high heels if you want to be a prostitute if you want to work if you want to be a mother if you want whatever it is just make sure that it's your choice that's what feminism is um not about saying oh we don't need men and you know like we're better and you know man haters like that's that's just not helpful um to what it to what it is um and i find it so interesting i i my thoughts are so all over the place as i because so many people have been just saying amazing things but one of the things um that struck me from last week um was i th i th i think it was michael correct me if i'm wrong um who spoke about seeing the play originally the woman who played ruth um and saying she was so understated and it was um that really affected me throughout the whole reading of the play then that um 
this idea that it wasn't this over emotive thing because you can't hold emotions if you see an actor being emotional it can stop the audience whereas when you're when you go off sensation you get all the nuances then and that's what makes it so rich that this play seems to lend itself to all these nuances and nothing is telling an actor how to be there's so many different ways that it could be interpreted um sometimes i, I felt like i was almost having a, a rosy view of maybe who Ruth is or what she is this idea of you know well you know maybe you know maybe she's not doing that and maybe she's just humoring them and she's just going to go and do her own thing at the end who says she's going to be um you know actually be a, a prostitute and be this person that she, it seems to me that she's being quite dry like oh sure yeah okay yeah we'll do that mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but at the end of the day what you were talking about there as well harry was the um you know like is that idea that you argue that what is said isn't true so ultimately the freedom is with the actor to make the most interesting choices so you could say no she won't do that but is what you say she would do more interesting than that what's going to give the most exciting context um to work in it with um for the actor which then means that that the audience can have that um you would hope i suppose a, a reactive response as well um and even even the idea of um for example how how we receive ruth's behavior uh towards the guys this um the the idea of um manipulating them i find really interesting because I mean, I've I've probably missed so much in the play. This whole thing of picking it apart. I um, but it's it's just a thought that manipulation to me is when somebody isn't aware of what's happening to them, and to me, they seem very aware of what's happening to them. They're very um, able to respond to what she says to them. She doesn't hide anything of what she's saying. She's not um trying to trick anybody um it doesn't seem she's just speaking out um how she sees things um so and and this idea of um the humanity so the writer's voice if we're asking the question um is he you know is harold pinter a, a feminist or a misogynist it's this idea of that well through the characters is that the idea is that it's not the writer's voice anyway this and what the conversation was at the beginning about that the characters could run away with the story so to bring them back and what you were talking about his whole story changing for the process throughout it all um that that's the richness of it is to that the writer's voice doesn't control who the characters are because then it's it's going to be banal it's going to be something that we've all heard we hear every day on the streets so it's showing the ugly um of humanity um that he doesn't seem to be afraid to to put out there um there was a a, a thing that was said um in in one an interview i i wonder if it was michael billington who said it you'd probably know harry that um 
for the play One for the Road, and he said that he wrote it as a reaction to his anger to the torture that he saw as a result of patriarchy. Um, and he said that was the, the, the one kind of thing that he was really being emotionally reactive to. Um, but the rest of it is, is, is kind of putting it out there for us to see a problem. And it doesn't mean that the actor, uh, that, that the writer is, is saying that it's okay, but it's just putting it out there. Mm. That's, those are <laughs> a that was, few that thoughts. Great. That was great. I mean, Harold, it must be said, Harold, in, in, my, in my experience, would, would not have used a word like patriarchy. He, he wrote one for the road because these uh, people from the Turkish embassy said, well, the people we're torturing are communists, so they deserve what they get. And that was what made him so, so angry, was, was that um, mm. anyone could, be, could be, uh, qualify for torture because of the label that was stuck on them. Um, but Tara, I, I just want to share this, this paragraph with you. Um, so much of what you said there was was of great, great value and interest. And here's a, a little bit of an interview that Harold gave in 1967. So with the play really fresh and just having won the Tony in New York. Quote. If this had been a happy marriage, he's talking about Ruth and Teddy. If this had been a happy marriage, it wouldn't have happened. But Ruth didn't want to go back to America with her husband. So what the hell is she going to do? She's misinterpreted deliberately and used by this family, but eventually she comes back at them with a whip. She says, if you want to play this game, I can play it as well as you. She does not become a harlot. At the end of the play, she's in possession of a, kind of, a certain kind of freedom. She can do what she wants. And it is not at all certain she'll go off to Greek Street. But mm. even if she did, even if she did, she would not be a harlot in her own mind. And I think that's so telling um, that her independence, going back to, to what Kerry was saying um, early on about, um, or was it uh, Pushpam, oh, both of you, about, you know, the, the testimony of, of sex workers uh, uh, that, that they can feel empowered and independent and that we should believe that and trust that um, and, and so forth. Uh, still a few hands. Um, let's try and get through the, the ones who haven't spoken yet. Uh, Polly. Hi, thank you. God, this is the most fantastic discussion. Thank you all. I'm just so thrilled. There's several things I want to say. I actually saw, and I hadn't even read it, uh, my first production of this in Broadway 208, I guess, 2008, with uh, Eve Best playing Ruth. I thought it was the most extraordinary production. I was absolutely thrilled. Ian McShane was Max, uh, Raul Esparza was Lenny. I was, but it's so different from Vivian Merchant for me. So I, I love what Tara said about feminism. I agree with you totally that that's what feminism should be. When I saw that play, because we are second-class citizens still, I was like, yes. Eve was so powerful. She so overruled these five men. I mean, it, it was just a thrilling uh, example of feminine power, you know? And I didn't believe for a second, I didn't care. I didn't, maybe she'd be a whore or not, but she was going to do what she wanted. She won. She was just such a clear winner. It was so exciting. Um, Vivian is so much more mysterious and sort of like a cat. You don't really know what's going on. I had the same feelings about her, but I guess I, because I saw Eve Best first, I found that more thrilling. His, Harold Pinter's plays are so rich 
they feed me in a way that most writers don't. And I've been listening to all of you trying to think of why. And I do think it's because these characters are so, they're so specific. They're almost unimaginable. I could never have imagined them, but then I believe them. Then they're, they're so real. And by the way, we're all Puritan in America, as I'm sure you know. So the language, all these, you know, scatological, whatever insults, fantastic. We just love. And, but you Brits have always been, I think, nastier than we are, you know, with your language or you somehow had permission. We don't. Um, but I did want to also say, I hope this is not too off the road. So I, I said it before, before I did or read any Pinter, right out of college, I did Ruffian on the Stair in New York. And we had a six week rehearsal and Harriet, the way you described, you know, being in the room and being able to find all this stuff. Now that's a 45 minute play. And we had eight hours a day, six weeks back when, you know, people used to do that. And it was so extraordinary. He And I know Pinter loved uh, Joe Orton, but I hope it's okay to ask Frank Corrado because this great director, Robin Lynn Smith, left New York and went to Seattle. And it was such a gift that she gave us. Do you know her? Is she still there? Is she? Can't hear you. My wife did. Who, uh... Hi, Mary. I'm speaking. Uh... Oh, wonderful. Well, please tell her hello and what a gift she gave me as a young person right out of school to start with that and that kind of ability to work that way on that kind of also really rich material. I'm, I'm not sure that we're communicating uh, uh, coherently. Um, my wife is not Robin Lynn Smith. No, no, I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I meant pass along if, you're, if your wife... If you know her, please thank her. Is she? Do you still see her? Is she still around? Uh, since I, I do know her, in fact, uh, her husband, um, John Schwab, was yes, and yeah. directed me in Arthur Miller's *The Price*. This was thirty-six, thirty-four years ago. So I got to know her a bit through that, but uh, I don't know if she still lives in Seattle or not. She did a lot of teaching as well. Okay, thank you. I didn't mean to digress, but it's so, because that I felt like that was my introduction to Pinter, working on that play. Uh -huh. It was so phenomenal. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, they were a great couple. Yeah, I knew him also. Really yeah. interesting, okay. interesting, Polly, you bring up Joe Orton, because um, Joe Orton had an opinion about the homecoming, which was that he felt that Ruth was very, very uh, much a device and that Harold had run out of, he'd run out of road and that he brought Ruth in as a way of finishing the play. I mean, I mean, he brought Ru Ru the, the development in the last 15 minutes of the play as a, as a way of um, tying up, tying up a, um, a situation that he didn't know how to get out of. Too bad. He didn't see Eve best in 2008. I wish I'd I seen Eve best. He I'm might've very, changed his mind. I'm really proud of the fact that when me and Henry were in New York in 2009 at the uh, mm. city university um, graduate center on fifth Avenue, we put on a whole day of tribute to Harold and Henry did monologue, but Eve Best uh, did poetry that night, some of Harold's poetry. And my God, she's a tremendous, uh, I mean, a great uh, speaker of Pinter, but, but also just a very powerful um, actress. And I wish I'd seen The Homecoming uh, with her in it. Um, where are we? Uh, we're with Frank, actually, next. You have to unmute, Frank. Thank you. Uh, so much of what I wanted to say seems to have been covered by 
several very brilliant comments from a lot of people. Um, just a, a little note about the production with Eve Best. Uh, years, many years ago, I, uh, I asked a, the artistic director of the Seattle Rep why they weren't doing any Pinter. And he looked at me as if I had three heads and said, box office death. Um, he's the director, as it turns out, of the production of The Homecoming that you saw with Eve Best. So I guess he came around. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention, getting back to this idea of um, our characters telling the truth to each other in Pinter and, and how, how actors and directors need to make, I think, real choices about what's being said, being true or being false or being misleading or being a manipulation of truth. Um, I uh, both years ago played Robert in Betrayal and, uh, and directed more recently the play in, in San Diego with my good friend Richard Baird, who I think is listening in here. And there was a, a situation where I maintain that when, when Robert tells, um, who's the other guy, uh, <laughs> Jerry, that he may have hit Emma once or twice, he's doing it more to insult Jerry, who was Emma's lover, than necessarily telling any sort of truth about what actually may or may not have happened. But the issue became the, the actress playing Emma decided that she um, unequivocally was a battered woman because of that one line and, and proceeded to go down this rabbit hole that completely, I think, um, led her astray in the production. We're not supposed to say stuff like this, but I just did. Anyway, um, but that can be the pinter trap, if you will. If you take things literally and without the possibility of uh, ambiguity or ambivalence. Um, but that's, as everybody has, has suggested, part of the wonder, part of the joy of playing pinter, that you, 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 you deal in stuff that isn't literal, that isn't on the money, that, that has all sorts of shades of red, white, blue, gray, black. And, um, and I also think that what I discovered in my time exclusively devoted to Pinter was, and I think a lot of actors will, will agree with this, that all you have to do is say the word Lenny or Davis or Emma or Ruth, and you know you're talking about characters in, a, in Pinter plays. In that regard, I think, and this is a hyperbolic utterance, I think he's the greatest creator of characters since Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. um, and I think character is what motivates all the action and all the, maybe action is, isn't even the word, but all the theatricality in the plays. And, and you know, you can, 
if you think back on any of them, Moonlight, Ashes to Ashes, um, they're all phenomenal, strange, but completely recognizable human beings. And, and, and for me, that's where the extraordinary richness of the work takes place. So I have spoken. <laughs> yeah, that, was, that was good. And um, I, love the, I love that you bring the word action in, Frank. I think that's absolutely crucial because we, and no one's alluded to it yet, but the, the, one of the pivotal moments of this play is when Ruth draws the men's attention to her leg and to the stockings and what's underneath the stockings. And um, the principle that she asserts, which is that the action is more important than what is said about it, is, is, could be applied to Harold's plays. Um, the, the, what happens uh, is, is where the audience will get their, you know, their juice from and where the performers can find their, their release and, um, and their pleasure. And that, I mean, Pinter more than most writers, it, 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 the, the content of Pinter is, is of the highest importance. But like no other writer, it's also when the content stops and silence prevails that sometimes the most is said. And so, you know, this, these, these things are what make Harold uh, a very special uh, writer. Would you, would you dispute what I've just said, Henry? <laughs> no, I think it's spot on. And I think anybody who takes a chance and seeing a Pinter play is going to probably get more than they bargained for because, you know, as uh, we have often said, Pinter was a poet. He was, his play, many of his plays are extended poems, which, what does that mean? It means that they have a resonance that goes on and on reverberating much more widely than when you see the play. And I think of those lines, I'm being a bit snotty and academic, but uh, those lines of Coleridge, when in his uh, poem he says about a character, weave a circle round him thrice and close your eyes with holy dread, from he on honeydew hath fed and drunk the milk of paradise. That's true of old Harold. <laughs> he, you better be careful when you see a Harold play because he's liable to change your life. And uh, the way that he makes free with the world of the imagination and what we have all decided is the real world. No, it isn't the real world. Harold wasn't afraid of dipping his feet in the other world. You know, there is a world elsewhere. As some theatrical character, I can't remember his name, said, there is a world elsewhere not dreamt of in your philosophy. And, uh, and by the way, a word about the Jews. The Jews are really bored as Jews by the stereotypes that surround Jews. Jews just want to go on being people. They don't actually particularly want to prove themselves and belong but social circumstances have made them gather like musk oxen in a defensive circle where they are the other world view of what makes Jews. And it's boring as heck because they only 
as a people, they've existed a long time. There's nothing particularly special about them. They're only about two point something percent of the whole, or 0.2 percent of the whole human population. But because of circumstances and history, we have to go through this dance of being prejudiced against, of being wanting to belong. I've no, we don't. We just want to go on being Jews or people. What about being people? <laughs> Enough from me. That's well said. Um, I'm still longing to get to the uh, the Moshe Wernick uh, backstory, but let's um, let's have another question. All right, Kathleen. Hi, Kathleen. Hi. Um, something that Mike said, the question he posed about when Ruth's turn comes, when does she turn and decide she's going to take the situation in hand? And it made it made me giggle a little because after the reading last week, I thought for the first time back to wondering what must have been the conversation in America when they decided to make this trip. And I'm remembering that they've just come from Italy, haven't they? And you know, you can't just come from Italy. It it takes a minute to wear off of you. It's the culture is so different there. And I wonder, you know, they walk through the door and she seems to have Teddy in hand already. Remember, he keeps saying, you need to rest, you need to rest. And she goes, no, I'm going to go out for a walk. I think she's just come back to take the neighborhood back over, you know. <laughs> I think she's she's already there. But then I'm I'm laughing too because I I'm thinking about seeing her on that campus at home with Teddy the professor and how she must have taken like my whole world is is shifted thinking did she take Teddy's colleagues in hand too? Did she dominate the campus? And then I thought, what if Ruth and Martha from Virginia Woolf had cocktails? You know what I mean? It was just, there's something in that mother destroyer kind of archetype that is so true in both of them. Very different, of course, with Albie. Maybe not very different, but, you know, Albie and Pinter elevate those two women to some kind of almost Kali in Martha's case, this horrible thing, like you can't look away. You just have to go to the middle of the web and you know you're gonna be killed. And then I always think, and I've never seen it quite staged this way, but when I read it, I always think that that moment where Joey puts his head in Ruth's lap, it, the first image that comes to me is the Pieta, and then I'm thinking, oh, is he, you know, is he just nuzzling her pussy? You know, both of those things. Like she's the mother, she's the whore. So I just think it's so, it's such a great opportunity to move in a, in a direction with her that shows the men in such sharp relief as the animals that they are. And you know, you don't hate them, you just pity them. So that's all I have to say. That, that, that's great. There is a hefty 
body of, of criticism um, about this play, which, which you know, really takes uh, the Oedipal angle very, very um, strongly with this play. That, uh, you know, that Ruth is, is the, the fantasy fulfillment of their, their longing for the, for the lost mother who comes back, who they can then have sex with. Um, yeah. uh, to the horror of, of, of the, the dying older men. Uh, particularly Max. I mean, I don't know. I don't think a, a, a purely Freudian uh, take is is especially useful. But I do absolutely think it's vital to be aware, awake to the mythological threads that permeate, because there must be a reason why this play, which is so offensive, um, is is considered to be one of the great classics of the last three hundred years. In other words even though audiences are apparently repelled by it, unconsciously, they love it. <laughs> because unconsciously, it's speaking to the collective um, condition uh, on, a number of, on a number of mythological levels. That's, that's just um, yeah. a bit of my mythological thinking to th thrown in. Uh, right, we're down to three hands. Yeah, let's uh, go to Amanda. Not that I don't love having hands, but I'm longing to read you Maurice Wernick. Hi, everybody. Okay, so my question, well, it's just more of a comment. It's not necessarily about the homecoming. I just found it fascinating um, how Pinter was inspired to write a kind of Alaska after, you know, 50 years after people were waking up from the epidemic of 1916. And I'm just wondering now, after this, what we're going through right now, I'm just wondering what great playwright is going to write it and how they're going to tell the story and you know what that's going to look like mm. well amanda that's uh gosh wouldn't it be wonderful if a great work of art came out of this terrible it has to you know well you're right to to draw attention to the to a kind of alaska as as um, although obviously that pandemic was when was the sleeping sickness in the early 1920s wasn't it 1920s yeah um, 1916. The wonderful um, encephalitis lethargica. But what, what's his name? The wonderful um, medic who wrote the book. Oh, I don't know. Sachs. Oliver Sachs. Oliver Sachs. Uh, there's a wonderful correspondence between Harold Pinter and Oliver Sachs about how that play came came about. Um, it's one of my favourite plays. We still haven't looked at it on this on this um, grid, and we really must. We must look at it. Well, uh, maybe you're a writer, Amanda. We've never seen you before here. You're most welcome. It's great to, it's great to meet you. Thank you. I'm an actor, but I do like to write as well. Okay. Nice are you, to meet you. Are, where are you, in New York or here? I'm in Vancouver. You're in Vancouver. Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. I showed my film in Vancouver uh, a few years ago. Oh, okay. Which one was that? My, uh, I can't remember where we did it, but um, I have a very good friend called Robert Maloney in Vancouver as an actor. And okay. he, he arranged a, a screening. I'm just, I'm just telling you that I've been to Vancouver. <laughs> awesome. And showed a um, film, of course. That's... Well done, Harry. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, so Matt and... Um, yeah. Uh, forgotten Michael's name, Mike. Uh, keep it brief, boys, because you, you're, you're having a second bite and I want to get on. All right, uh, let's go Matthew first. Yo. Um, yeah. Um... I'm just thinking it's just um, as great as it is that it sparks political 
relevance to today and all the discussions. I think what's important is, which is why it excites a player like this. Um, and it's what Frank said about character. Um, they're very eccentric people. And a, lot of the P and a lot of the characters he wrote at this time are very eccentric. And I think um, Mark Rylance said about um, the reason why Rooster Byron was so big is because it spoke to this need for eccentricity that we love in Britain and all over the world. But you know, it's a very British trait. Um, and I think that's kind of sad how that's been squashed out, especially in the theatre, um, which is why I just think it's very exciting because as repulsive as these characters can be, they are very interesting. They're like larger than life. It's what you said about they tap into the imaginative world as well as the realistic world. So it's great that it's politically relevant, but I think that's another important factor in these plays. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, Michael. Yeah, just a quickie, really. I mean, it's going back to the uh, the the issues over all the comments around sex in the backs of uh, of, of taxis. Um, don't know why I'm attracted to that idea. But as a very young actor, maybe four years uh, after the, the the original London production of this, so I'm talking 68, 69, um, in London, what I did as a young actor was uh, minicab driving. And it was always better to do the night shift because that left the day free for, you know, for castings and calls. And uh, so working the night shift as a minicab driver in London at that time, you saw everything. It was such a, uh, an education in, into the world and the nightlife of, of London that, um, you know, a lot of that sort of action became very, very close and observable. Um, so all that sort of strikes, strikes very real. I mean, I think it, it also sets up interesting question. We haven't talked, the one character we haven't really talked about this evening at all is Sam. And what, what his role is there? What is, what's his sort of sexuality? And where, where is he? Is he the, the chauffeur that brought the girl to, uh, to Lenny under the bridge that night? Was he, you know, how is, how is he involved in the whole world? Because clearly he had this and has been carrying this, um, uh, this secret between him and Jesse, that he saw her, her and McGregor at it on the back, um, and that's enough to to, to kill him. The uh, the uh, <laughs> revealing of that, you know, or it's it's the last thing he wants to have said before he dies. You know, it's the it's the, his last chance to get it out there. Um, uh, so Sam, I think, is an interesting character, but also I think reading it, I think what a difficult character to play Teddy is particularly in the whole of that final sequence because he hasn't got the lines but he's there listening observing this and mm -hmm. um, how you know i wonder as uh, as an actor how would one would generate those reactions unless they you know it's absolutely you're absolutely clear about what your motivation is and clear how the the men's action reaction to him you know deliberately before they go in for a kiss or or and even even for ruth playing stuff to him uh, during that sort of section to, um, you know, during which he can, he can generate what's necessary for him to, to leave. Uh, so again, it's the, the sort of fascinating things to, to discuss and discover during re the rehearsal process really. Yeah, absolutely. But back to you, Harry, for the Wernick. Um, yeah, a couple of, uh, I can't remember who, what, what, who, is it Elliot or who? Who somebody wrote in our beginnings are our ends. Some, I think, 
Elliot, I think. Is that from a four a quartet or something? Anyway, no. um, that that comes to mind when you consider that in this play, um, the immediate reaction to meeting Ruth is they call her all kinds of names of prostitutes. But that's exactly what it turns out that she that she appears to be identifying with by the end of the play. At the very beginning of the play, at the very beginning of the play, Sam is needling Max about Jesse in, in the back of the taxi. And and finally, when he says it at the end of the play, it kills him. Um, but but this is the you know, one of Harold's greatest things is is to somebody said it at the very beginning about how the stakes are always so high. And why do we meet these people when we meet them? And we meet we meet you know, Max and Sam both appear to be literally on the precipice of dying on the very day that we that we meet them. Um, the play seems to almost uh, obey the, the classical unities of time and place. It all seems to take place within, you know, t- 24 or 48 hours. Um, and uh, Sam is extremely agitated. He's longing to tell Max the resentment that they feel in their relationship as has got to the, the point where it's brimming over. And, and from the very beginning of the play, Sam is longing to um, fire all his both barrels at Max and tell him. Um, so these, you know, this is part of Harold's thing is, is to seed these things and then, de- you know, deliver them um, at the end. And I'm sure that's part of the drafting um, process. Anyone who's got a, a, a reader ticket to the British Library, you can go and sit there and, and look at these different drafts uh, and see how the play evolves. Yeah. One thing that you also made me think of there, Mike, was that, um, and by the way, folks, for those of you who, who didn't get it last week, I have just, I did post early on this evening, a link to the movie of The Homecoming on on the internet. So if you haven't seen it, watch it, because, for example, going back to Sam and Mike's points, when you watch Sam, when you watch the exquisite Cyril Cusack playing Sam, he 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 plays minute reactions which the camera can pick up, um, which tell us so much about what Sam is not saying. When you watch the close-ups of Vivian Merchant playing Ruth when she's confronted as they come in in their dressing gowns and they first meet Max, the minute reactions, the corner of her mouth, the flicker of her eye as they refer to her in these disparaging ways, she takes it in. She absolutely takes in what's happening and you can feel her storing away her emotional reaction for for a later time when she'll be able to deploy it with maximum power but the close-up is such a potent thing in in a a film like the Peter Hall's movie of the homecoming and that's why it's worth watching Vivian Merchant's performance as I said a lot last week is is um just uh incredible Anyway, now I want to just return to the question of the origins of the play, and Henry w- would lovely to, would be lovely to hear your comments about this. But there are two things um, that that Morris has Morris Wernick, Moisha Wernick, one of the Pinter, one of the Hackney gang, which Henry and Harold um, belong to, um, chaps who went to school together and stayed friends for sixty plus years. So uh, this is from Billington, and uh, it's a short version of of the the tale. So I'll just quickly read this. I married in 1956, this is Moisha, and left immediately to start life in Canada. I never told my father that I was married. 
And for the next 10 years, I continued to keep up this pretense, even on my infrequent visits to England. Harold thought this was unwise on my part, as did Henry, Joe Brearley, my wife, and come to think of it, everyone except me. They all went along with it, however, out of respect for my wishes. I came in time to join the ranks of those who felt it was ridiculous. And in 1964, I brought my whole, which is the year the play was written, by the way, I brought my whole family to England where my father met his daughter-in-law and grandchildren. I don't need to tell you it was one of the most memorable moments of my life. Why did I take what I now regard as a mistaken course? For the simple reason, I believed it would spare him being hurt. 40 years ago, marrying out, in inverted commas, was still not regarded lightly. He means, of course, outside the Jewish faith. My father was in no sense a bigot, and I certainly did not live in fear of his displeasure. Harold would get a laugh out of this idea, as would anyone who knew him. So that's the, that's the little short um, version. Um, but here is Morris's own entry in uh, the Pinter Review. I won't read it all, but... Um, I will read this. As is common in families, there was a considerable difference between my uncle and my father. Uncle Moshe was not a big man, but could be described as burly. And as I later learned, had something of a reputation for being prone to settling problems in a violent manner. I'm sure that Harold's father told me that he'd heard of him, but only for his reputation. The event relating to the homecoming took place in this period. Harold was present when my uncle arrived on one of his visits. The four of us were treated to his usual bawdy and profane stories. I'm not prepared to say that it was on this particular visit I learned that in wartime London, packed with troops in the build-up to D-Day, taxis could sometimes serve as travelling bordellos when hired for that purpose if the drivers were greedy enough to risk losing their licences and their livelihoods. <laughs> I cite this story as a good example of these conversations. I have a clear memory of Harold making no contribution but listening quietly. I also remember my father being obviously embarrassed by the possible effect upon Harold and me, but nothing was said to staunch the flow. Uh, and then he goes on, it is relevant here to describe the second event at which I was not present, but represents the epitome of this entire matter of the origins of the homecoming. In my mind, I think of it as the Peter Hall incident, and it is related in Michael Billington's biography of Harold by them both. It took place when they were together in Hackney, when they were filming the version of the homecoming, uh, which was designed to be seen in cinemas in a number of countries. Peter Hall was taken by Harold to my house. They rang the bell and in Peter Hall's description, an old man appeared. The old man was my father, who was always pleased to see Harold and welcomed him in. His image that evening, flat cap, cardigan, plimsolls, walking stick, was fixed in both their memories and was to be recreated in the play. Harold's version, as told to Billington, was very specific. That was the image I had of him, but there was nothing else to it. The homecoming did not take place in that house, nor was there any other source there was the image of the old man and the street itself. The 1964 family reunion released Harold from his promise and allowed him to speak freely about the background. My wife and I went to New York to see the play and when the curtains opened, I was almost startled to see a man seated in an armchair, centre stage, whose flat cap, cardigan and appearance was momentarily disturbing. Harold, earlier that day, had introduced me to Paul Rogers and his first words to me were, so you're the Moisha Wernick. <laughs> It was obvious that Harold had given the cast some significant background. 
In the years that have followed, a variety of people have determined that there were strong resemblances between my family and Harold's imaginative creations, despite the clear statements I've quoted above. I believe that it should be conclusive to say that if indeed Harold was doing an actual portrayal of my father as a vindictive tyrant, my brother as a pimp, and my beloved wife of over 50 years as a putative whore, our friendship would not have passed the 60-year milestone. (laughs) (laughs) The events I have described offered Harold a scaffold within which he constructed one of the great plays of our literature. It is time to stop discussing the scaffold. It's a great last line. <laughs> it's time to stop discussing the, the scaffold. Anyway, um, Henry, what, what do, do you hear Moise's voice in, in that? Uh, that Absolutely. Absolutely. Very well read, too. Dear old, Wernick got a bit offended because how would you like your father and uncles and brothers? described in the play as a gang of rats or wolves with extraordinary vocabularies. But I think this this um, this snippet about taxis um, being bordellos and so forth, and Harold listening quietly and making mental notes, I think it's very important <laughs> in the, the pursuit of the clues that are embedded in the play. Because I don't think it's too far-fetched to propose that Max and McGregor were in business together, not only as butchers, but also as, as underworld figures. Hmm. They were two of the most, yeah. the, the play says they were two of the most feared men in the West End, that whole rooms would clear when they walked through, that, that people were terrified of them and showed their respect by, by being frightened and silent when they were about and that they still have the scars to show for their lives back in the day. Um, the fact that Lenny is working in, in Soho uh, as a pimp and that he and his father seem to have a very competitive um, relationship could be another clue. Um, the fact that we know that Ruth was modeling and certainly um, she was very happy to be photographed nude, that she went to these country house parties, that she was, and that, and that that was so important to her that she visited that house the day before she went to America with Teddy. That's another detail that's included in the play. I think all these clues add up to a strong possibility that Lenny recognizes a working girl when she walks through the door. And- yeah. Um, and that Teddy went to America to escape the, this fam- these family values, um, but that he's perfectly well acquainted as well. I know I'm, I'm riffing off, off a wonderful essay by a guy called Martin Eslin, who wrote one of the best books about Harold um, that, that's still, uh, still available now. But um, so for me, the, the backstory and the, the hinterland of the play strongly suggests that the normal world of these characters is a world that morally the rest of us would find repugnant and unacceptable. But it's their everyday world. Um, They've grown up in it. They know all about it. Maybe Lenny has always suspected that he was conceived um, in the back of a cab. I I dare say there are people who've suggested that Lenny is actually McGregor's son. and so forth and so it goes. But um, I think it's so important and interesting to, to realize that people's moral revulsion um, 
when they when they see the play uh, and the accusations that have always been leveled at Harold that he has himself no moral center and makes uh, and takes no moral position um i i've run out of i've run out of words i just wanted to say some of that before we finish because i think it's um i think it's juicy juicy stuff and it tells us a lot about ruth as a um as somebody who may well have gone to america hoping to leave her her, her old life behind her but having had the three kids and now faced with a george and martha campus life um you know the, the idea of the trip to venice is some kind of marriage-saving second honeymoon, which hasn't worked out. Uh, let's face it, when she walks through the door with Teddy, she's, she is not, uh, you know, skipping through the daisies, is she? Um, and the fact that she may be looking for an exit strategy uh, is, is, I think, perfectly uh, valid, a valid thing to explore in, in rehearsal. Uh, I'll shut up. Pushpan. Oh, it's something really small, but this whole thing that we started off, you know, how many weeks ago was a discussion that Pinter loves food and then there's butchers and then, <laughs> and then there's this, this whole sort of parallel um, sort of imagery of the butcher being the chopper up of like meat and the, their actual, you know, their actual gangster life. I mean, it's just, just yeah. saying just saying. And one also gets echoes of that fantastic um, gangster movie, The Long Good Friday, where Bob Hoskins plays a, um, a funnily enough, a gangster called Harold, um, who is a butcher on the side. And um, when he has a roundup of um, suspects, he hangs them from butcher's hooks uh, yeah. in, in a, a refrigerated butchery. Well, that's, that's, a, that's an excellent movie. <laughs> but um, but the, it's funny, isn't it? The, since then, the, even the Godfather, the Goodfellas, this whole sort of like gangsters of butchers. I don't know where that came from. Probably from from real life, I expect. Uh, Mike, did you want to come back on, on some of the stuff? I just you, you need to do your thing. You need to unmute me. Okay, is that better? Okay, that's good. Um, yeah, it was, um, you know, what's really interesting about this, because so much of the criticisms of, 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 the, of Beckett's work, of um, Pinter's work, is that um, they're, they're, they're exaggerated. You know, they're, they're not real creatures. But just as, just as that story about the, the guy coming into the pub, having pushed his mother up the chimney, and, <laughs> re and Pinter's reaction, well, it, it, isn't that extraordinary? or he's, he's extraordinary is he you know well just personally um an experience uh, of a, a jewish family they're the, the children of some great friends of mine and uh you know the the the, the wife had been uh a, an observing jew all her life was as good as gold and calm and and um tranquil and couldn't have been more sort of Jewish frame than you, uh, a Jewish, um, uh, an example of, of, a, of a Jewish mother. And she had, they ended up with triplets uh, and they'd had two kids beforehand. So there were five kids involved. She walked away from it all and became a, uh, a nude photographic model for people who wanted models on, online. She recruited her, you know, she set up a studio and had people in to, 
photograph her. Now, whether that eventually developed into into sex work is, you know, discussion within the family. And only she knows. She eventually went off to the West Indies with a, a guy and set up a bar and lost all the family money and everything that, that there was. In. <laughs> but, you know, in terms of Pinter choosing to take people to the extremes of their lifestyles or their particular cultural backgrounds and just place them before us as examples of humanity trying to deal with existence. You know, it's what makes his work so, so powerful and, um, uh, you know, exhaustingly interesting to, to, uh, to discuss and work with. Yeah, and, and, and that, for actors, that goes into performance because even in, even in um, a, a fully rehearsed production, you often end up as actors with maybe two or three ways of playing a certain line or a certain, a certain speech. And the wonderful um, thing about Harold's work is that you have to trust that you don't have to predetermine which way to play it. There may be two or three, or you may, you may come up with a brand new way of playing the line in the moment. And you have to trust that you have to go with it because that that unfolding present moment of the action is where the where the joy is. And that, of course, is uh, it, no one knows this better than um, Henry. That's where the the division lies, as it indeed it, it, it's a real thing between productions which revere and therefore kill the spirit and spark of Harold's work and productions which release it and and take the audience on that um, that roller coaster ride. Yeah. And I say, I say that Henry knows this better than most because it was Henry who directed the very first production of the very first Pinter play, uh, The Room, um, and had to watch as a, a, a more senior director at the time then walked off with the play and murdered it. Isn't that, isn't that true, Henry? I'm afraid to say it is. But <laughs> the thing that made me laugh, you mentioned Martin Essen. He either borrowed that wonderful phrase the comedy of menace about Harold's plays. And there were lots of laughs on the first night of the room. But when the chap who took the play away produced it, no laughs were allowed. This was a cultural evening. Please sit up straight and don't rustle your toffee papers. <laughs> you know, that was what he like. He had a carrot somewhere about him. Like not sure which part of his physiology it worked out. I've just, uh, for, for those of you who, who like a good yarn and who don't believe it's true about the man being stuffed up the chimney, I have just posted the, the story in the chat as a PDF so you can read it uh, at your leisure. It's the most wonderful. Uh, Aitborn tells, tells the story very wonderfully. Um, Kerry, come, come, uh, come back to us and say something else. Yeah, I was just thinking, um, so I'm an actor and a writer and my love and specialist is um, like creating theatre from personal experience and verbatim theatre, which um, like a Lucky Blythe is one of my favourite playwrights um, for that form of theatre. But I was just thinking the more I was listening to everyone say tonight about how he draws from like real life and like the way this line jumped out at me. I worked as a butcher all my life using the chopper and the slab the slab you know what I mean the chopper and the slab and like when I interview people and I put their sentences into a play like people well like I'm doing it right now we just we speak in this irregular repeat repetitive way and he just nails that doesn't he and like I guess he must have been 
I, like I read something about the Baton Theatre and it was like um like a straight playwright it was like actually everything's verbatim it's just in verbatim we actually say that it it has come from real life and I think it's interesting that he must have really like been listening all the time to like the real way people talk and then like um yeah taking people's stories and putting them on the stage and I was wondering Henry as his friend did you ever think like were you ever like you bastard I said that or that's my story like were you ever afraid to like tell him stuff because you you know it might appear in a play well we all listen to each other because otherwise they wouldn't listen to us and we did admire him tremendously but we never let him know that was a kind of thing and one thing I may say about the family, Max and his kids, the whole gang of them had an ethos, just like a, a mafia gang. They, in their total vulgarity and scathing comments, nevertheless had a code of behaviour that Teddy had broken. And I think that's very important. And that Ruth was immediately accepted as, not immediately, not at the start of the play, by the end, she was a fully qualified graduate of this pack of wolves and was the leader. Well, implied as a leader. Would you mind if I just had a tiny thing more? When we look at how silences and pauses the words, something you said, Harry, earlier about the minute moments of pause and silence are so important. I think the words of the play, which are so brilliant, actually are just a scaffolding for the life that goes on in the silences and pauses of the plays. And Pinter's plays uh, reverberate with that. I don't know if that makes any sense, but there we go. It, it makes a lot of sense. And, and I came across, because I was reading Martin Eslin today, and um, he quotes uh, a big old name from philosophy, uh, Mr. Wittgenstein, but it's a wonderful quote. Nothing is lost if one does not seek to say the unsayable. Instead, that which cannot be spoken is unspeakably contained in that which is. And um, this, yeah. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> hello, hello. It's deep. It's pretty deep. Um, but um, I might just, I might just say, um, Amanda. I know you had your hand up. We'll, we'll come back to you. Um, not everybody knows this, so I'll share it because it might be of interest. That Harold always began his plays um, by writing A and B. He always started um, with a uh, an alphabetical. He had no character names. That always came much later, as I've, as I've shared this evening. You know, um, Max was known as Wally in the play. Um, there are many, many name changes. But he always begins simply by writing A and then what B says. And then if, if a C comes in, what C says. Now, I think this is, you know, uh, for those of us who like to write and have tried to write plays and, and things, this is a wonderfully simple uh, gift, really, in terms of of allowing the possibility of the unconscious to come to come through and be and participate in the process. Because you don't need to know who A is; you just have to try and listen and see if A's got anything to say. Um, yeah. so the very first draft uh, of the homecoming begins thus: A, 
Why are you yawning? B, I'm not. Pause. A, are you tired? B, no. That's, that's the very first sketch of the very first draft of the homecoming. Um, and as such, it, it's kind of um, humbling because it's, it's not great, is it? <laughs> it's got a long way to go. Anyway, that's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to say. Amanda, did you want to say something? I just had a question for Henry um, about um, the room and the, the party that Harold had uh, been to when he saw this person feeding the guy meat. And sure. when he told you that story, what was it about the way he told you that story that made that you got on him and said, you need to write the room? Well, because he turned an ostensibly ordinary event into something reverberating with implications. Who was this man? Who were they both? What was their relationship? So on and so forth. So when he used images from ordinary life, they immediately became transformed into poetic images that teased your mind for a long time later. I don't know if that's a satisfactory answer. Yeah, no, it is. It is just, it's just fascinating because from what I understand, you were, you gave him that push and he turned it out in four days or something like that. It's two days, actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> two days. That's incredible. He did. And the drama department of Bristol said, when asked me, how much will your production cost? I said, not more than one and ninepence, which was about... 45 cents. And they were immediately interested in that. They said, well, it sounds, have you, could we see a copy of the play? And so I immediately called Harold and I said, Harold, I think we've got a production. Can you write the play? He <laughs> said, I can't write a play in under six months. I've never written a play, but he wrote it in two days. <laughs> That's incredible. Thank you. Thank you. Henry, um, I wanted to ask you, yes, when, you, when you first saw or read The Homecoming, yes. what, what was your reaction? Well, the immediate reaction was, hello, I'm not walking through the daffodils here. I'm walking through a barbed wire fence over a minefield. And so these characters was so vivid that they got hold of me by the scruff of the neck and said, pay attention. And I just was captivated by that side of Harold. He, between me and you, he wasn't a bad writer, you know. <laughs> did you recognise the, the world of the homecoming, though? Did you, did you see things that you knew Harold had been thinking about for a while, finally taking form and shape and realising their potential? Well, I tell you, it was a world I was not totally familiar with, but well aware of. That other world of the London's East End and the Jewish side of it, all of it. But as I said earlier, rather boringly, there was the other world that it included too the world of the imagination, where the characters were allowed to expand 
and express themselves as they did within themselves, not merely in social contact, but within their own selves. That's what makes Harold's plays so lively and wonderful. One of the many things that people are talking through their real thoughts, as well as their socially acceptable or unacceptable thoughts. For me, those second, the second category of what society regards as acceptable or unacceptable comes second to the urgency of the need to speak their minds. Mm. I don't know if that makes sense. Mm. <laughs> no, it does make sense. I mean, it's such an obvious and ridiculous thing to say, but absolutely no other bugger on the planet could ever have written The Homecoming. I mean, it, it is... It's out of his bowels, isn't it? It's yes, yes, it is. There's it. Harold understood the violence in himself and the violence of the society in the East End too, and of the war that was only relatively recently over, twenty years ago, eighteen years ago, and he um, he was never violent unless provoked, actually. Never. But his awareness of violence was there, as the play shows. But do you think he had a, um, a particular fascination for the underworld, for the London gang, gangster world? Not particular, because the rest of the world was so fascinating, you know. He was so fascinated, for example, by Henry Miller, and when Harold looked as if he was going to go to prison for being a conscientious objector in the peacetime, Henry Miller sent him a whole pile of books and said, if you go to prison, I think you might need these. Mm. <laughs> he, so the, he was fascinated by violence because violence isn't a very Jewish trait. You know, the events since the war have maybe disproved that, but not totally at all. The Jews have talked rather than fought violently because they've lived for a long time as a people, you know. Anyway, they didn't have anything to fight with. You only have to read the Old Testament to see just how violent they were. It wasn't out of choice. It wasn't out of wisdom. It's because they didn't have any guns, and that was it. Um, uh, uh, Henry, must you must know this, but the others maybe don't, and I'll, I'll dig around for it now. But there are th there are three published letters that Henry that Harold wrote to Henry Miller at the age of eighteen, when yes. he was when he thought he was about to go to prison, where he he almost begs Henry Miller. He says, "Please, can I come to Paris and work? Let me be your secretary. I I'll do anything for you." Um, uh, and then the uh, next the next letter says. Um, Oh, uh, they haven't sent me to prison, so um, well, that's good, isn't it? And then he, he just goes on chatting. But he's eighteen years old, writing to his his literary idol. They're wonderful letters. Right. I'll dig it out and put it on the chat as a kind of final offering. Um, there are a couple of hands, Michael. Okay, well, it's just to <clears throat> to build on on Henry's story about the uh, uh, the Jewish aspect of the East End and. The, the way the Jewish community had learnt to protect themselves. I mean, my ex-partner's father 
they, they lived in the East End and, and well, uh, Stanford Hill and then the East End. And during the course of the uh, Oswald Mosley and all the black shirt um, uh, demonstrations and things like that, the provocative marches of fascism through the East End, the Jewish boys needed to protect themselves. So they set up Jewish boxing clubs and and uh, literally sort of vigilante uh, groups to protect their, their areas, protect the synagogues and things like this. So there were guys who were used to taking that physical masculine responsibility for protection of the, the environment and their, their culture and their people. And, you know, so what did those guys do with that? Uh, and a lot of, and the, the, all, the, the, all of them who went through the war too had, uh, you know, life altering and, uh, um, uh, and challenging experiences to live through. So what did, where did all that sort of masculine energy go to after the war? You know, when people were struggling to make a living out of the ruins of what was, what was then London. No wonder that a lot of that was channeled into sort of semi-legal or illegal uh, activities at the time. So the, the whole ethos of the period was sort of charged with all that recent background as Henry was talking about. Um, I just wanted to, to ask a, a question about, um, you know the 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 sort of and it comes as a surprise out of Lenny's mouth when it happens. All that sort of philosophical questioning of of uh, uh, of Teddy as a doctor of philosophy. Uh, I picked it up here. Well, I want to ask you something. Do you detect a certain logical incoherence in the central affirmation of Christian theism? You know, it's not, it's not, it's not the language we've heard from Lenny beforehand. And we'd have been, you know, if we'd taken. The initial image of of Lenny and added our preconceptions of what a, a, a Jewish East End white boy pimp was was about. They're not the sort of language or or uh, questioning that you would expect to come out of him. So what I was wondering, um, Henry, was that in those discussions between the the, the, the Hackney boys, the five of you, and Ron Percival in particular, seemed to be a, a powerful influence in these ways. When you were exchanging ideas of the things that you were reading and stimulating and political ideas and all those sort of late night discussions, was that the sort of language that might have been used at some stage? That yeah, all, all the time, actually. We're yeah. always uh, not just young men showing off to each other, but really exploring what life was about because we didn't expect to live very long. We really thought the Cold War and the atom bomb would finish us. But what I think, apropos of this play and ourselves as young men, was a deep cynicism that ran through Jewish families because of the events of the Second World War when the so-called civilized countries turned and massacred millions of Jews and the general idea and millions of Poles and millions of anyone they didn't like. And the, what I think that Max and the family have as an underlying attitude is a profound cynicism about social values and social behavior. You might as well be a criminal and admit it rather than be a hypocrite and not admit it. And we shared that cynicism about society. We believed in our own lives, not in what society was going to bring us, because so far, 
<laughs> it didn't bring us very much. Nobody ever hit me as a little boy. The first person who hit me was the daughter of the fascist lieutenant who lived next door. I was five years old and she hit me over the head with a wooden tennis racket. No one had ever hit me. It didn't hurt that much. Well, I said, why did you do that? She said, it's nothing personal. It's because you're Jewish. So that... <laughs> It's a great story. <laughs> um, I wish you, uh, Henry, your your book. Henry wrote a memoir, folks, which is which is just wonderful. And um, is it available, Henry? In all yes, I think in well, I've got some here, but in England, Anthony Asprey, the old chum of Harold's, who Harold helped found and sustain his gravel press, has got lots of copies. The Greville Press in Warwick. If anybody wants a copy of Henry's uh, autobiography, write to me and I will connect you to Anthony Asprey. There's a lot about Harold in it. That's what's interesting. There's, there's quite a lot about Henry in it, too. <laughs> oh, who, who was that? Who's him? <laughs> Who's him? Who's he when he's at home? Um, there's a little bit of, of chat going on in the te- in the thing. When and where did Lenny get that language or education? Well, I suppose you could use the same argument, Henry, that that Lenny is of your generation and that Lenny could well have benefited, as you and Harold and many others did, from the yeah. Education Act of 1944, which required schools yes. to stay at school for another two years, where they would have had a lot more exposure to philosophy and poetry and um, thought. That's a marvellous thought, because... That's where working-class theatre originated in England. And working-class literature was given an opening instead of being a hidden manifestation of a rather inferior group. It became the language of the theatre, or one of the languages of the theatre. And what you say about, and Lenny says about Wittgenstein, absolutely. And there's also... Why, I'm about to be a bit vulgar, perhaps, why don't you take all that education and stick it in the best place for it and stop killing people? There is a cynicism about Lenny and his family, which one would feel is rather justified. Um, folks, we're running out of time, and uh, it's been a, just, a, just a lovely, gorgeous session. Um, the question for the regulars is what what do we do next week and um in the past what we've done with a nice big play like this is we've come back and rehearsed chunks and um played about with the text and directed a bit and acted a bit so maybe we should uh, put that in the in the mix because um this play only really uh means anything when it's being spoken aloud Anyway, that's for that's for next week, and obviously I'll, I will write to all the regulars and um, invite invite feedback. Um, but maybe I should leave the last word to Harold um, because he he's got a few more things to say here. Uh, he he re- recalls the incident in which Moisha's dad came with his plimsolls and cardigan and flat cap and walking stick. Um, he admits that Max had uh, origins in real life. At the same time, this is from uh, Billington, by the way. At the same time, Harold is anxious to point out that the homecoming is not intended to be a localised Jewish family drama. 
He says, quote, the image of the old man who was Moshe Wernick's father may have been a kind of source. I didn't know him well. We didn't discuss our parents in those days, but the image of Moshe's father in a cap and plimsolls was one I carried with me. I knew him to be a pretty authoritarian figure, a really tough old bugger. That was the image I had of him, but there was nothing else to it. The homecoming didn't take place in that house, nor was there any one source. There was the image of the old man and of the street itself. If you look at that shot in the film, that's how I see it. That's where it takes place, in that district. After all, the play was embedded in the East End, but although I was once attacked in the Jewish Chronicle for not admitting the play was about a Jewish family, I don't subscribe to that. I do see there's a seed there for a Jewish man to bring back a shiksa was in those days a dread thing to do. I heard later that one or two people I knew at school had done it. Their families considered them to be dead. I'm not denying that there's a spring somewhere of that kind. Why deny it? But I've always felt it wasn't a play about Jewish society. The fact that it makes sense in all sorts of languages and communities not remotely Jewish bears that out. The narrative continues. In other words, the archetypal and universal aspect of Harold's writing is bigger than any any one thing, one in one label that he was so resolute about yeah. not having stuck to him. Mm, um, yeah. Well, uh, it's 9.30. That's our official closing time. Frank and Mary, how glorious to see you. Uh, welcome to everybody else who's, who's uh, not spoken but been quietly present. Um, hope you'll come back and do more. There are many, many of Harold's plays that we haven't looked at yet. And, um, uh, you know, they're all pretty, uh, they're all pretty good. <laughs> um, please uh, do watch my documentary if you haven't, because there's a lot of Harold talking in that film about his own process and a lot of him in rehearsal um and uh henry um thank you so so much for joining us again it is just such a pleasure and privilege to hang out with you like this it's nice of you they'll be sick of the sight of me though <laughs> don't you believe it run at it shouting do as he says run at it shouting ah.